Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16, here's the way it reads from the English Standard Version. The soldiers led Jesus away inside the place, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute Jesus, Hail, King of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak, they put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the hill country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. They brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the head or place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. They divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. You understand Mark wants you to understand they crucified him, right? The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see, that we may believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, the centurion said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's pray. Father God, as we open your word uh, to a familiar passage, I pray that we're not too quick, God, to think that we understand all that's contained. I pray that we're not too quick to uh, think that we have arrived. I pray that we're not too quick to bypass this particular text because of the ugliness of the text. But help us, God, to sit. Help us to sit in our suffering. Help us to sit in our anguish. Help us to sit and realize, God, that without this historical event, God, there would be no hope. Without you loving you, loving us the way you do, uh, we would have no resurrection. We would have no eternal life. We would have no real definition of love. 
God, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears. And again, God, that we would respond. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about anticipation. It's kind of funny that Jay mentioned anticipation in his communion meditation. I had no idea what he was going to talk about, and he had no idea what I was going to talk about. But anticipation, right, it's an interesting thing. When I was a kid, my dad, before he worked for a chemical company, he retired from Frito-Lay, and he drove one of those box trucks. You see the box truck from time to time, right? There was always one posted outside our, our uh, front, uh, right along the curb in front of our house until he moved up into upper management. But that was kind of his safe place to hide all the Christmas gifts. And after Thanksgiving, we just tried to peer in Try to figure out what was coming for Christmas. There was a certain anticipation. You guys all know what I'm talking about, right? When you, when you get closer and closer to Christmas, especially as kids, there's some sort of anticipation for, for Christmas. We were that way, and then finally they got smart enough and moved the Christmas gifts to his warehouse. So, um, anticipation. How many of you like roller coasters? Anybody like roller coasters? Yeah, there's a lot of us in here that like roller coasters. So you know that part where you get on the you get on the cart, right? They put you in, they belt you in, they they push this thing down as tight as they can get, and then all of a sudden the ride takes off and you and you're going higher and higher and you're thinking this thing can't go much higher, right? And there's this anticipation for what's about to happen, especially those good roller coasters where you've kind of leveled off and it stops. Some of you are really freaked out right right now, right? And you're able to see throughout the park of all these little minions running around and having a good time, and then it's like the bottom falls out, right? Anticipation, right? Anticipation's a good thing. I, I think about Noah as he sends the dove out, right, to, to figure out whether it's time for those things on the ark. I, uh, was, it, was it you? Wednesday that talked about how much poop was on the ark. I thought there must be a lot of poop on the ark after that many days, but surely Noah was anticipating, okay, God, give us a sign. Give us some kind of give us some kind of promise that it's it's time, right? It's starting to stink around here. Maybe he had some some good anticipating uh, going on. I think we as Christians are notorious for this. I think there are people in your life, there are people in my life that anticipate Easter. You mentioned the phrase Holy Week just a few minutes ago. You know some people have a relationship with God simply around holidays like Holy Week or like Easter or like Christmas, and that's all they anticipate. My challenge to you this morning, my challenge to myself the last few weeks as I've looked at this text, and my challenge to you this morning is before we anticipate what's to come, before we get to Sunday, let's sit in Thursday, Monday, Thursday, if you know what that means, or Friday as they're beating our Lord and Savior, or as they're placing a crown of thorns upon his head, or as the text we just read said, they were spitting on him, right? They were devaluing him. They had no value for him at all. So for the tomb to be rolled, for the, the rock in front of the tomb to be rolled away, right? For Jesus Christ, you've all been to probably one of those, those pageants where 
you, you have the light shining from within the, the, the tomb, right? And Jesus has risen. And there's something within our emotions that gets us every time, or at least it does for me, and I'm sure it does for you. We have to sit in this anguish. We have to sit in this place that's really awkward, is it not? I mean, it's really strange because we don't like to be uncomfortable. Some of you perhaps saw the movie The Passion of the Christ years ago, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. Many of us saw that movie. But how many of us saw it a second time or a third time? You know what? It went further down. There were less people that saw it every time. You know why? Because it made us uncomfortable. Whether it was realistic or not, it was graphic enough to get the point across that it wasn't just about getting as quickly as we could to the resurrection we had to deal with what they did to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 700 years prior to Jesus Christ. We've, we talked a little bit about Isaiah uh, throughout the Gospel of Mark. And Mark alludes to Isaiah quite a bit. and We're going to see that again uh, here today. But 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus Christ, we read in Isaiah chapter 50, I think it's up here on the screen for you, Isaiah chapter 50, Listen, listen to what, I gave my back to those who strike. Remember what we're talking about. This is God in the flesh. This is what Matthew would call Emmanuel, God with us. And 700 years prior to Jesus Christ being born, this is written about him in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 and 7. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. Do you guys remember in the garden when Jesus Christ says, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Remember that? What was he talking about? Take this cup from me. This is what I came to do. His flesh is crying out. This is the most brutal death you can ever imagine. Going to the cross, going to the Roman, they were professionals at killing people. And I think we're so immune. I think we as New Testament Christians are so immune. We can read words on a page. We can get some semblance through a movie like The Passion of the Christ. But can we really fully understand creatures doing what they did to the Creator? Pretty amazing. And the flesh... Jesus is completely divine. He's also completely mankind, right? His flesh says, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And we talked a little bit in our Bible study this morning about what love is, and I think that's a good picture of what love is. It's not just creation. Mind you, creation, even knowing what, God, what, what man would do towards God. We would spit in his face when he said, don't eat from that tree in the middle of the garden, wouldn't we? And God banishes us from the garden. We're no longer in the presence of God, right? We've separated ourselves from God. And even then, God continues to desire relationship with us. God loves us so much that he gave his only son, who would do all these things that Jay mentioned for us in his communion meditation. He would turn water into wine. He would heal lepers. He would give sight to the blind. He would feed thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And we were all there for that. We were all wanting the next sign. 
Did you notice here? This, this is particularly interesting to me in Mark chapter 15. I mentioned to you several times the Gospel writer says he wants to make sure you understand and they crucified him and they crucified him and they crucified him. You understand there's, this is not what kills you, right? Nailing, nailing your wrists to the boards, that's not what kills you. Sometimes they even tied criminals to crosses. We know that they did to Jesus the nailing because he eventually tells Thomas, look and see the evidence. That's not what kills you though. What kills you is you become so weak that you can't, you can't push yourself up anymore. And you die from asphyxiation. You die from fluid filling your lungs. You, you can no longer breathe. In, in other words, you're, you drown yourself right there on the cross. Horrible, horrible thing. And the Romans were, as I said, they were professionals. They were really good. They, they figured it out. If you were a Jew and you walked this road day after day and you saw the example of who was in charge, the Romans wanted you to understand they were in charge. I want you to notice that it says, not only did they, they crucify him, they crucified him, they crucified him, and they, verse 24, they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. These are the they being the Romans to decide which each should take. Jesus was not the only one who claimed to be the Messiah, but he had a large following. And so, surely, it's almost as if you went to a book signing and got this author to sign your, your book. Jesus had gathered such a following, and so it would have held some kind of benefit, I suppose, in your mind if later on down the road you would have said, remember Jesus of Nazareth? Hey, I, I got this part of his garments. I got this. I got that. We're not so shocked by the blasphemy from the Gentiles, from the Romans, right? The Romans had nothing to do with Jesus. Maybe it's the robbers. Maybe it's the criminals that strike us as strange. They were crawling out to Jesus. Hey, save yourself. Hey, if you are the Messiah, if you are who you claim to be, right, save yourself. And yet one is humble enough to say, let me be with you in paradise sometime today. Notice what it says in verse 29. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you said you would destroy the temple in three days. Remember that from a couple of weeks ago? We're talking about this massive structure. 35 acres. This temple structure. 35 acres. This thing was huge. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you remember, each of these stones will fall upon themselves. And notice how this is the Jew. These are the chief priests even. You said you would destroy your temple and build it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. The chief priests, that's a Jew, the scribes, they mocked him to one another saying he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, now you talk about blasphemy, let, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. How much evidence do you need? If you were at the wedding in Cana, and you saw and heard what Jesus did. It was a miracle. It was something supernatural. Even the one who was in charge of the wedding party said, even the wine is better now than it was to begin with. If you were evident, if you were around witnesses where Jesus had healed, or even the thousands that gathered and Jesus was healing with, or, or feeding with just a couple of fish and just a couple of loaves of bread, surely you would believe those things, right? Or fast forward to... The Passover meal where Jesus is having a meal with his closest followers and they're debating about who's going to be in charge, who's going to sit at his right hand, 
They still don't get it. They're still arguing among themselves. And Judas, who's been there all along, good old Judas, Judas has been there all along. And Jesus starts talking about blasphemy. He talks about someone who will be the traitor. Ask him. Ask him. What, what does he mean? Who, who's he talking about? Sure. It's not going to be me, right? Remember Jesus says, the one who dips his bread in this bowl. The one who has part of what I'm doing. And he goes on to say, that person, it would be better if that person had not been born. Remember that? Now specifically, he has a dialogue with Judas and he says, what you do, go do quickly. Now, think about that for a second. Judas has seen everything up to this point that all the other apostles have seen, right? I mean, he's one of them. He's in the inner circle so much that he carries the money bag. He's the treasurer of the group. And Jesus says, what you do, go do quickly. And he sells Jesus. He sells the Messiah. He sells the Christ. He sells the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. We have chief priests here, church. We have religious people who should know what to look for when the Messiah was coming, right? I, I read a portion of of Isaiah chapter 50 for you. Let me read from Isaiah chapter 53. You'll, you'll know this text. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by men. Gentiles? Yeah. Seems the Romans didn't like him, right? Not just the Gentiles, but the religious people too, the Jews, even Judas. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. 700 years prior to Jesus being born in the flesh. I'm beating a dead horse because this makes all the difference in the world. 700 years prior to Jesus being born in the flesh, this messianic prophecy in the book of Isaiah is written about him. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You guys remember what the apostles did, right? As soon as he was arrested, what happened to them? Like a covey of quail, they're out. I wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that, right? Remember what he told Peter. Peter says, not on my watch. It's never going to happen to you, right? And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't think, have the things of God in mind, right? He's talking about something much bigger than we could ever imagine. This is not just for the sins of religious people. This is not just for the sins of those who have it all together. This is for the sins of the Roman soldiers. This is for the sins of the chief priest. This is for the sins of the entire world. This is for the sins of Judas. Jesus wanted relationship with all people. Does that mean all people are going to receive that relationship? No. Some people are going to reject Jesus Christ. But, but think about this for a second. This is love. Surely the chief priest, surely the religious people would know this text. You know, if you're standing there, this just occurred to me, if you're standing there and you're watching what the Romans are doing to Jesus, if you have any kind of inclination that this might be the Messiah, I mean, he teaches this one without authority, right? With authority, like the other 
the other rabbis, the other people, they, they can teach, but, but not like Jesus does, right? And so if you're standing there thinking, maybe, perhaps, this might be the Messiah, this might be the Christ, this might be the promised one from God, and they're doing what they're doing to Jesus, don't you think that somewhere in the back of your head you're thinking, you know, I remember we read in the synagogue last, last week, Isaiah 53. Don't you think there should be bells and whistles going off? If you know your text, if you know your scripture, and no one's bold enough to stop it, right? No, no one. In fact, they're the ones at the bottom of the crucify him, crucify him, give us, give us this real criminal. Remember that? And Pilate said, What's he done? I'm gonna wash my hands, right? He, his blood's on your hands. And they say, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And they are the religious people. Isaiah 53 goes on to say, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Now, that, my friends, is a verse that is taken out of context over and over and over again. By his wounds we are healed physically. No. By his wounds we are healed spiritually because we have the opportunity to get back to God. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You think Paul had this in mind when he writes Romans chapter 3, verse 23? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what's the, what's the punishment for sin? Punishment is death, chapter 6, verse 23. You, you get the idea. It goes on to say, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears us. That would have been strange for a Jew to hear this. I would think that the temple, every time you went to sacrifice, every time you went to the Day of Atonement, every time people were lined up with their little lamb ready to sacrifice, that it was a pretty loud place, especially once the lamb knew what was going to happen. I would think it would be a bloody place, a noisy place. It would... When you read this about the Messiah, when you read this about the Christ, when you read this about Jesus, when it says, yet he no, opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before it shears his side, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord. Now this is, this is kind of strange. It was the will of the Lord. Why, why would he say that? It was the will of the Lord because God wants relationship with you. Because God wants relationship with Judas. Because God wants relationship with every Gentile Roman soldier that was there. This is love. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall come the righteous one, my servant. Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the, with the sinners, with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Church, before you anticipate Easter, before you anticipate the resurrection, before you anticipate all the goodness of what God has promised us, we praise God for that. But before we ever get to the crucifixion, or before we ever get to the resurrection, we have to deal with the crucifixion. We have to recognize what, what they've done to Jesus. This is blasphemy. 
Verse 33 says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land. Darkness, I, I would imagine that's a thick darkness. That was something you could feel. That was something you could touch. This, this is darkness. There, there's, there's darkness and then there's darkness. You understand what I'm talking about? I, I think Mark has in his mind the, the, the darkest of dark that you could ever imagine. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, from, from six in the morning till nine in the morning. And then Jesus cries out, he quotes from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another gospel writer tells us that God the Father has to turn his face. If he had a face, he would turn his face because a holy God cannot coexist with sin. And the sin of the Romans, the sin of Judas, the sin of all mankind, my sin, your sin, all sin was placed upon him there at the cross. He says things like, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Love? I think you would have to agree that's, that's love. Before he breathes his last, he says things like tetelestai, which means it is finished. What is it? The complete sacrifice for mankind. It is finished. Now what do you do with that? God loves you so much, but what do you do with that? Don't be too quick to get to the resurrection. Don't be too quick to celebrate. Don't be too quick to do all the things that we do, whether we have nice clothes, dress up in nice clothes, have, whether we go out and have a good time with the kids, whatever, whatever it is Easter means for you, don't be too quick to get past this idea of the cross. Don't be too quick to get out of the uncomfortable places where we sit and we have to look upon the cross, we have to look upon God hanging on the cross because of our sin. Now what do you do with that? God loves you that much. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. A, actually, I'm going to have Marianne play a song. I'm not going to sing. I want you to reflect for just a, a verse or two as she plays. Then I'm going to have an elder come up and, and pray, and then we're going to be dismissed. And perhaps instead of celebrating on our way out, we can do something that makes us a little bit more uncomfortable, and that is reflecting upon our own sin. So let me pray. God, this Easter, this time that we prepare to celebrate a resurrection, it's always interesting to me that, that we think of this week as different than any other week. Every Sunday should be Easter. Every Sunday we should celebrate the resurrection, but I think we do so in a way that we want to get as quickly as we can past the gruesome crucifixion. I, I think we don't like to be... We don't like to see things that are ugly. We don't like to feel things that make our stomach turn. We definitely don't like to see our God hanging on a cross. But sometimes, God, we need to recognize the significance of what's occurring. And sometimes we need to recognize that you love us in, in great ways, and this is one of those great ways. God, I pray that uh, we are not too quick to move past uh, looking at our sin. May we never, ever, ever um, take for granted grace and mercy and forgiveness and love, but help us to understand the responsibility we have. Help us to understand, God, that uh, it's our sin that hung in there. We can't blame the Romans. We can't blame the Jews. We can't blame the chief priests, the religious people, but we all have a, a part to play. And Help us to come to terms with our own sin and recognize that there's something that you want to do in our lives. I pray these things by the name of Jesus. Amen.